So other albums we have electro albums, Art of Noise in No Sense Nonsense. I think it's a good album. I, really I mean, don't. to a certain extent, they were making the same album again. You know, there's always that moments in love imitation. But I yeah. think it's I think it's good. I, I I think they always had a musicality. I know there's one musician that we both know who I won't mention, but um, I was having a conversation and almost has a psychopathic hatred of Art of Noise. And this is when music really turned, despises them. Really? And um, obviously I loved the stuff, you know, the conceptualised by Morley and produced by Trevor Horn. And I think they still went on to do some interesting I think the first, the first album is incredible. It, you know, it was a game changer, that first album. And then the second album, when Trevor Horn and Paul Morley were no longer involved, is okay. This album to me just sounds like almost like library music. It's very well. Bland. There is a sense that that ZTC sound. I mean, obviously ZTT yeah. had kind of dominated probably from sort of eighty four to eighty six, you know. And there's a sense that this is slightly post the Art of Noise. Are they had a hit with it? But they're slightly out of time. They're slightly out of place. They're slightly out of fashion. It seemed like they were all their singles were like novelty singles, didn't they? The do singles a, were. They did yeah. a single with Max Headroom, and they did a single yeah, with yeah. Dwayne Eddy, yeah. Peter Gunn. And also, you know, partly, let's be fair to them, the whole idea of the art of noise was really to explore the possibilities available for the first time of sampling. Yeah. And three years later, sampling was commonplace. It was everywhere. So they no longer had that kind of novelty uh, aspect uh, on their side, did they? I think when the first time you heard Close to the Edit or, you know, some of the moments of love, it's like, because mm. you'd never really heard music based just purely on sampling before. Yeah. No, by this stage, it was ubiquitous. It's I ubiquitous, agree. And in yeah. some ways, mm. it was almost like Art of Noise could have been manual and the music from the mountains. You know? Which is a bit what it sounds like to me. This <laughs> yeah, yeah. Other records from this year, Savage, Eurythmics, one of their best, I think. Um, yeah, well, I think it is. I think it's, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? Because I really like their, their debut. Is it the, the, In, the, in garden? the Garden? Yeah, I think great. it's great. And I think the, the two albums that followed that, um, Touch and Sweet Touch, Dreams, sweet. are really decent. To me, it kind of got a little too brash and mainstream. And this, again, the age of melancholy and goth. So the mid-80s, the 85 album, it's got that happy, clappy, big single, live aid mentality. They come crashing down with this, a very experimental uh, single with, I love to listen to Beethoven. But some of this album is really quite brutal as a kind of S&M quality, or at least a sense of being in abusive relationships. And a couple of the the harshest ballads and most experimental textures they used. I really like it. I mean, I like all of you. I like Be Yourself Tonight. You're right, it's a big stadium album, but it's, it's a great album too. I think they were very good at, uh, you know, making every album feel like it had its own personality and its own identity. And Savage definitely does. Uh, One Second by Yellow. I don't know if we talked about Yellow on the show. Maybe this, no. isn't, this isn't necessarily the album I would talk about. It's good. Isn't this with Billy McKenzie? Yeah, Billy McKenzie's yeah. on this record. But one record we probably should talk about, because this is a band that have come back and completely reinvented themselves, is The Ideal Copy by Wire. Yeah. Now, just to give a little history, so The Wire came out of punk, released one, I wouldn't say generic punk record, but clearly coming from that genre, Pink Flag, then developed more into a kind of post-punk Pink Floyd with Chairs Missing and 154, and then released a live album and then broke up. They've come back in 1987 and they've made an album where they have completely grasped the times, if you like, and redefined themselves as a kind of electronic band. Yeah. 
but still sound very much like a continuation as well, don't they? They've pulled off that trick. Well, the transition for them was there was an EP a year before this called the Snake Drill EP, and Mm. that is possibly my favourite ever Wire release. And that, in some ways, has the sonic experiments of 154, but where they're going, there are kind of stranger electronic textures and so on. But, you know, I know this isn't the thing to say, but my favourite period of Wire is this mid to late 80s period of wire. Why I think is that, that not the thing to say? Um, because I think everybody believes that Pink Flood 154, Chairs Missing, this is the definitive wire, whereas for me, they absolutely reinvented themselves as a kind of viable electronic pop band, but a viable electronic pop band with ideas, emotion. I mean, I, I suppose I feel it a lot more than I feel the early, The earlier work is slightly colder in its production, slightly icer in its vocal delivery. This, okay. I kind of find more in, all enveloping, really. Okay. I personally would have said the opposite. I think the, the first three albums are much more organic, much warmer. This is almost deliberately a very Teutonic sounding record. In fact, I think they recorded it at Hansa, didn't they? With with the, some of the same guys that had been working on the Depeche Mode records. I think I'm right in saying that. So to me, it's a much more cold, electronic, robotic, mid 80s sounding record. But I love that because mm. I love those kind of records. And But it's like you say, there are these two very distinct phases of Wire. But there's a kind of archness and a curiosity about the possibilities of the technology which goes through all of their work whether it's the beginning or at times it's like an avant-garde new order as well to me yes or 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 a slightly more uh, a slightly less commercial sort of Depeche Mode in a way Mm. Uh, and they were on Mute which was Depeche Mode's label at the time they'd been signed by Daniel Miller to Mute in fact I think Daniel Miller was pretty much responsible for getting them back together again he was like guys you've got to get back together again and make a record and I'll sign you to my label and it's funny because this is a wire record that sounds like it was made almost because they'd signed to mute Mm. it's it's got all the hallmarks of a lot of the other mute acts of the time so but is it but as everything in wire world it's twisted into a shape which could only be wire they really do personalize that sound you're right you know it's probably as close as they came to the mainstream in the sense that you could imagine this stuff being played on the radio with Depeche Mode, with New Order, but they haven't lost any of their creativity or archness. It's, I, I, you know, it's, it's just a really nice fusion I think of head, approaches. A head was almost a hit, wasn't it? it was yeah. Like a, it was like yeah, an, indie, yeah. an indie hit, yeah. But I was going to say, so going backtracking slightly, Petrol Boys, one of the other things they had was a tremendous sense of design. You know, we were talking again in the 70s that, say, even Fleetwood Mac had this. I think that was one of the things that also gave an indication that Pet Shop Boys were much, much more than just an electropop duo. The way in which the records were presented as well, the artwork and so on, there was a very considered sense. And Wire, I think, equally have this, that every album isn't just an album, it's an art project as well. Yeah, that's the art school background. The art school background for a lot of these guys. Yeah. So let's move on to singer songwriters. Now, singer songwriters is not really a genre you would immediately think would be blossoming at this time, is it? You wouldn't. Nineteen eighty-seven. You wouldn't think mm-hmm. singer songwriters. 
But actually, there are some great singer-songwriters around at this time making some of their best work. Momus, we love the Moms mm-hmm. on the album Years, don't we? His second album, The Poison Boyfriend, came out this year. Might um, be my favourite. Yeah, one of my favourites too. Um, so he's still very much a singer-songwriter here, isn't he? That, though later on, he would almost become like a pervier version of the Pet Shop Boys. Yeah. But here, he's, the acoustic guitar is still fundamental to the sound of the record. It's quite lush and quite musical, isn't it, in parts? Yeah. Um, and obviously, it has Closer to You, which I... Closer to You, beautiful. Yeah. But he's definitely evolving uh, already mm. from, from his first record. And um, we've also got what I think you and I would both agree is our favourite David Sylvian record this year, Secrets mm-hmm. of the Beehive, which in a way, I kind of think, I think of the Talk Talk albums from the late 80s as well as being real anomalies in terms of when they came out. And I think this similarly, because there's something so, you think of the 80s as the, as the era of big reverbs, processed dx7 keyboard sound all the things that people that don't like 80s music yeah. kind of point at and there was a lot of that to be fair here here david sylvan comes out with an album that's acoustic guitars nylon strong guitars string arrangements piano brass a beautifully kind of dry warm upfront quality to his voice it's completely an anachronism, isn't it, in 1987? It is. I mean, it's it. much more like a kind of witch season production from the late 60s, yeah. early 70s, you know, closer to Nick Drake or early John Martin. The only thing that in a way is perhaps 80s is some of his vocal affectation, some of his vocal sound. Perhaps he has a sound that you associate with the 80s. It is, I think, my favourite David Sylvian album, and it is one of my favourite albums of all time. Though, interestingly enough, probably in the first few weeks of its release, I was slightly disappointed in the way that, and you may remember this, I was slightly disappointed as well with Spirit of Eden. Though that became, you know, one of my favourite albums of all time and, you know, laughing stock as well. In that, what Sylvian was doing with Tin Drum, obviously with Japan, Brilliant Trees and Gone to Earth. It was using the technology of the day in really interesting ways. This was 1980s music blended with kind of organic jazz elements and it seemed to be some kind of future. So I remember being excited when I listened to those albums thinking, this is where music can go. Ditto Colour of Spring to a certain extent because there's an aspect of 80s production space and technology, but it's more organic in its integration of solo instruments and, let's say, certain jazz uh, influences. And so when this came out, it was, like Spirit of Eden, like Laughingstock, 100% organic, 100% an album that actually could have existed in 1970, as much as it could have existed in 1987. Whereas Tin Drum, Brilliant Trees... They couldn't have existed in any era, probably outside of 81, 84. This was a timeless statement. And initially, I remember being slightly disappointed. Um, And I always liked the single pop song, which I felt almost kind of took on the Brilliant Trees Gone to Earth innovations. But anyway, yeah, very quickly, it became my favourite David Sylvian album after that initial disappointment. 
Yeah, it's got a timeless sound. It doesn't really belong to the era it was made in. And, and those kind of records, I suppose, sometimes take a period of time to resonate because they don't belong to whatever, whatever else is going on. Uh, they just exist in their own little bubble. But of course, the, the advantage of that is that that bubble kind of preserves them forevermore. Uh, they, they'd never date. They'd mm. never become associated with the era that they were made in. Yeah. And I think the Six of the Beehive still sounds as good as, you know, as it ever did in that sense, because it doesn't pay lip service to the technology of the day. And it also fits in, you know, when we're talking about this uh, era of melancholy and goth sensibility he equally taps into it. You know, if there is a difference, of course, Nick Drake's work is melancholy, but it's several degrees removed from goth. There is something perhaps in the darkness of Sylvian's voice in some of the unusual chord voicings where you can certainly pitch it alongside the 4AD version of goth. And that's why Nick Drake, in many respects, is is the poster child for this whole idea of music out of time, because his albums didn't sell at the time. They were not part of the zeitgeist. Nobody was interested in listening to those records at the time. But of course, they just go on year after year, gaining in stature, Mm. reaching a new audience, because they don't belong. They don't belong to any genre. They don't belong to any time. They exist outside of time. They exist outside of genre. And I think that's true of this album too. And as you say, Colour of Spring, Spirit of Eden. Uh, American Music Club. I know you're a big fan of American Music Club. Engine. Is this a good entry? I've never been a fan. Is this a good entry? It's really odd. We've never really, I think, dealt with a year where there's been an Eitzel or American Music Club album that I love. Uh, So this this is another one one you don't really like. Yeah, it's it's not that I dislike it at all. I mean, Eitzel, I think, was um, a tremendous songwriter. And, he certainly had elements of uh, of Drake in what he did. I'm talking about obviously Nick Drake there, not Charlie, not Drake, not, not Drake Charlie Drake or Drake yeah. or Charlie Drake. Yeah, you know, very distinctive, emotive songwriter. I think that in some ways at this stage, American Music Club were almost a part of that pack of American indie artists like Ten Thousand Maniacs, REM, and so on. Whereas I think that. There's an album a couple of years later, Songs of Love Live, which was a solo um, Eitzel album, which I thought was tremendous. And I think that, you know, when they reach the stage of Everclear and Mercury, that's when it's hitting the music that, that certainly had an impact on me. But it is linked, I suppose, to Secrets of the Beehive in that his singing is very timelessly unaffected compared to a lot of styles in the 80s and it is almost kind of reaching back to classic singer-songwriters. Also this year we have a, a Van Morrison now, Poetic Champions Composer. I'm not familiar with this. I'm a big Van Morrison fan. I'm not with this particular record but he seemed very prolific during this whole period. It still is. It still is very prolific. It still is very yeah. prolific. He's released two albums a year. I'm guessing, Tim, this is kind of a a middling to fair entry in the discography. It's a, it's a good entry. It's good. I but, mean... Yeah. I really like this period. Um, it's kind of it's the one that follows no method, no guru, and it's similar. It's Van in spiritual mode. It's Van in ballad mode, which I like. You know, it's not as far out as Astral Weeks. It's leading towards yeah. some of the better moments of Avalon Sunset, for example. The only kind of comedy moment was his. I think because he plays a lot of instruments on it. So there's all sorts of photographs in it of him sitting very self-consciously at a piano or holding a guitar in the the inner sleeve. Or it might even be on the outer sleeve. But this idea of like... I played this. Is there lots of saxophone on it? Oh, yeah. He's got him with a saxophone. 
like being a saxophone he did the 80s, it was him yeah. it was yeah. him as fella Cootie on yeah. saxophone no he's better than fella Cootie, to be fair <laughs> he plays some lovely sax on on some of the records in the 80s I yeah know. no I, i'm being yeah really good. it's a really good album in some way he's not john coltrane but um, then i like david bowie's saxophone playing nothing wrong with somebody who can't really play picking up an instrument and having a go yeah especially if you're David Bowie or Van Morrison. <laughs> Other albums this year in the singer-songwriter category, we've got Solitude Standing by Suzanne Vega, Wonderful Life by Black, Robbie Robertson's self-titled album, Strange Weather by Marianne Faithful. Is that worth talking about a little bit? It's quite an unusual uh, career yeah. development too, isn't it? I, I loved that. I and mean, I loved it at the time. Still really like it. I mean, the big, the big change was on the previous album, wasn't it, with Broken English? But this is kind of continuing her new sound which is with this very broken croaky voice as opposed to the sort of angelic voice that she she'd been known for in the 60s well this was quite an unusual album because it featured a lot of her versions of classic songs from sort of 30s 40s the songbook um but she was using a lot of really interesting contemporary players. So Bill Frizzell is the guitarist on it. So a lot of the songs, it, again, it has a certain similarity um, with the way in which I think David Torn was on Secrets of the Beehive, wasn't he? Yes, he was. Yeah, he's all over. And him. yeah, but he wasn't as noticeably Torn-esque. You know, when Torn's on an album, often he dominates. What I really like with Secrets of the Beehive is that he's selectively used and he's beautifully used his loops his solos his sounds they really integrate nicely with the material and Bill Frizzell is used in a very similar way in Strange Weather so it's a series of kind of classic songbook pieces in a way although there's a version of his Tears Go By the Rolling Stones classic well her classic to be fair and her classic of course written by the the Stones and it has a timeless quality, but with some very interesting instrumentation. And of course, the title track's written by Tom Waits, specifically, yes, specifically yeah. for her. Is that right? Would, did he write it for her? Possibly, yeah. Because he hadn't recorded that song himself. It's, it's. I think he did a version later on on the one of his live records, but I don't think he'd recorded it. So I've got a feeling it was written for her. Well, again, it's quite. I mean, what's interesting? It's quite a dark album, and as we said, you know, if, if Secrets of the Beehive in some ways can almost fit in with this year of melancholy, year of goth, this can as well in a tangential way, despite her being an artist from a different generation. Let's talk about an artist that I think in many ways is a kind of quintessential album years artist because I don't think a lot of people know her and yet she's top tier I think in terms of her artistry and her experimentation and the ambition in her music. It's the sort of thing you and I love but probably an artist that not a lot of people listening will be aware of which is Jane Sibbery. Yeah. And this is The Walking, her album from this year, which may be this and the following year, following our Bound by the Beauty for me is uh, the ones I know the best. Mm-hmm. I know she's made a lot of records since then. I've kind of lost touch with her a little bit here. But this this was quite a mind-blowing album to hear um, in, in 1987. It's almost like, I mean, I hate comparing, but I'm going to do it anyway, because obviously you have to give reference points. She's almost like somewhere between the sort of performance art ambition of someone like Laurie Anderson, mm-hmm. but with the musicality and the songwriting chops of the ubiquitous Kate Bush. Yeah. 
I mean, ubiquitous in terms of every experimental female artist that has ever been mm. ends up getting compared to Kate Bush at some point. But do you know what I mean by that? It's it's or she's or she's or she's more like an existen- existential Katie Lang, or she's got elements of that too. Yeah, she's Canadian, isn't she? She is Canadian, and there's also uh, Ricky Lee Jones at her most experimental yes. as yeah. well. You can hear it in Jane. Yeah, like a, like. More experiment, like a much more somewhere between Laurie Anderson and Ricky Lee Jones. Maybe yeah. that's a better, I, a better kind of. Reference. I think the cold electronics and the jagged rhythms recall Laurie Anderson, and there is a kind of spoken word element and a conceptual element to almost every single lyric. Um, and there are also some, you know, very, very complicated musical moments. And I remember, weirdly enough, to bring an entirely different set of reference points. Um, I really liked this album. It was, as you say, very fresh and very unexpected. It's got a couple of incredibly long pieces that have passages of sound or spoken word or will then go into some kind of really peculiar atonal time signature electronic. And I think she was being interviewed in Radio 1 and I was kind of curious because, as you say, although... You can say, okay, Ricky Lee Jones, Kate Bush, Laurie Anderson, this is sort of the ballpark we're talking about. It had a unique sound and it was arguably more ambitious than that reductive description suggests. But what was interesting is when she was being interviewed on Radio 1, and you can imagine this in 1987, doing, oh yeah, well I remember my mind was blown by Yes and King Crimson. And because she was a Canadian singer-songwriter, she probably didn't realise how verboten these were as influences to mention on the and, Nicky uh, Campbell show. It, you know, she's definitely got her own thing going on. It's one of the things you have to go and listen to kind of understand it. That, that you, You're right in saying that that's ballpark. It's kind of trying to describe something to mm. someone and nothing really will do. But that's the ballpark we're talking about. Very experimental, but beautiful voice. And... The sad thing was, I remember this album was an out al- the sort of album you could pick up in the bargain bins uh, at the time. In it fact- got a lot of publicity. I mean, this was her one album in Britain where she got massive reviews in Melody Maker and they were pushing it. Um, and as I say, you even got on Radio 1. You know, this is where she was she was getting the big push. And maybe it just didn't click because it, she's such an eccentric artist. Of course, the thing is, you touched on something earlier where you said there's even an element of Katie Lang because you're right. She can do classic, simple ballads quite uniquely. And Katie Lang was a huge fan. And Katie Lang became one of the great supporters of Jane Sibbery and I think did a couple of cover versions of her songs. Oh, right, I didn't know that. Um, and also, when I was a boy, Brian Eno produced... Get your drinks out, guys. Yes! Brian Get Eno produced yeah. some of When I Was a Boy. So I think my favourite albums are When I Was a Boy, The Walking, and as you say, Bound by the Beauty that followed this, which had a much more ethereal country. I mean... The interesting thing was that was probably as close as she got. And unfortunately, it didn't get as much publicity as The Walking. I think The Walking was just too alien for people to perhaps grasp. Whereas Bound by the Beauty sort of fitted in with that lovely cowboy junkies contemporary country movement. Yeah, I like that record. Yeah, very but much. Yeah. I think probably it was not the right time. I think that was probably 89 or something. It was maybe just slightly too late for her to capitalise on that. But yeah, I mean, really talented and quite, um, I, I'd just say a unique mind. You can tell in, in the way that you can with Kate Bush when you're listening to someone like 
Laurie Anderson, Kate Bush, Sibri, there's a really unique mind present and you hear it in every moment of the music. Sometimes I think female artists are le much less obvious with their influences than male artists. Um, particularly the sort of female solo singers. Something very hard to understand. I mean, you know, think of Bjork or, yeah. or Kate or Jane Sibri or, or Joni Mitchell. Or, so it, it's hard sometimes to understand. Uh, in fact, another singer we're going to come on to in a minute, um, Sinead O'Connor, released her debut album this year. Again, it's kind of hard to understand... Where you know what are the influence? What what has kind of gone in to make this artist? Uh, what's make this? Sound yeah, good? yeah, yeah. No, it, exactly. And so say when Sibri was on Radio One, those were not what you'd necessarily expect. Although you can hear, I think, some of the drinking game, naughty Robert Fripp rhythms in some of what Sibri does. So you can possibly hear how that's filtered through. But it's it's filtered through her music in I such a unique way. I don't hear it at all. I mean, but in you know, in a good way. I'm um, sure that they but, but you know, Mitchell, she always talks about again, songbook music or country music or rock and roll music, you know. Mm. She's huge in terms of old rock and roll, which occasionally you hear where she she references it. But her own music. She might reference it in the lyrics. Yeah, but I don't, exactly. I don't really hear it in the music at all. Yeah. Yeah, Jane Sibri. I mean, I definitely think this is a, you know, this is an album year's artist because most people listening probably will not have heard of Jane Sibri. And you should definitely go and check out the, this album, particularly, I think, from this year, The Walking, because it's got a nice balance between the accessible and the experimental. Yeah. As you say, her next album was a bit more, a bit more sort of commercially minded. But this album is, is the one, I think, that, really made people take notice of her but maybe she is one of those artists that will still be discovered 100 years from now yeah. because she does you know she does she has made her own little world here well i bought it i think because i read there was, there was a rave melody maker review and which is, is what kind of led me to it right. but where she'd come from in terms of where she'd come from her first album is pretty straight singer songwriter but then her second third album is what made her a star in canada she had a, a hit called mimi on the beach she really ties in with that kind of early 80s Toronto new wave electropop scene. And it's a bit like new wave electropop filtered through a warped imagination. And the walking to me is where she takes it even further. Now, now this isn't an album, but the, fir the first Sugar Cube single was this year, mm -hmm. uh, Birthday. What a debut single that was. Yeah. Uh, had we ever heard anything like Bjork before? I mean, again, I can't think of a precedent. Can you think of... If you hear Bjork's voice on Birthday, what are you going to compare that to? I mean, what's, again, lovely, is what I keep on coming back to, what makes Birthday special is it's at once fresh, quirky, unlike anything you've heard, but fully engaging, joyous, accessible. It manages to pull off a difficult trick and it's sold well over a million and made the record company that we eventually signed to, One Little Indian, did it not? And yeah, it was incredibly fresh. And I think once more, coming back to how important artwork and packaging is, I think that those early Paul White designed sleeves were also quite unlike anything it was about at the time. And it perfectly matched the playful chaos in the music of, of Sugar Cubes. 
I mean, she sings with this kind of giddy. She's she's completely lost. And in fact, when you see her perform too, she's she's tiny, isn't she? She's mm. tiny. She's wearing this little dress, and she's just got this amazingly big, powerful, giddy voice. And you've not heard anything like it. Now, the problem I had with the Sugar Cubes is as I bought the, the subsequent singles, I began to realise that she, and I think she began to realise too, she was an extraordinary talent in a kind of okay band. Yeah. And, of course, she left Sugar Cubes after the second album or third album and started a solo career, which, uh, of course, the rest is history and really found herself. But this was the first time we'd ever heard Bjork. Uh, first time I'd ever heard Bjork. First time most people had ever heard Bjork. And uh, it's still one of the great debut singles of all time, I think, Birthday. It still sounds... But they're, weirdly enough, in terms of her music, I mean, I, of course, really respect what she went on to do and some of it actively like a lot. But the sugar cubes are what I actually come back to in terms of personal enjoyment, I think. Really? But you're right. There are very, very few precedents you know the only thing i can think of to a certain extent that sort of reminds me of the vibrant range of her voice maybe billy mckenzie maybe russell mail of sparks also this year mavericks off their rocker for us is this category we're currently residing in this is this is very sensitive this title obviously yeah <laughs> Listen to him. You know how sensitive I am. <laughs> Frank's Wild Years by Tom Waits. Is this his maddest record? It's it's Tom on ten, isn't it? Tom on eleven. Yeah. Uh, in and terms there are all of sorts of experiments, you know. I mean, I like. Doesn't he make the kind of seventy eight RPM sounds? Yes. Of certain. Well, there's a version of Innocent When You Dream. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it again. It's an album that you know we're talking about the, the Sylvian album existing outside of time being an anachronism. This is another example, isn't it? Yeah, and yet another example of the 1980s not being what people think the 1980s were. Because if you put this as a 1980s album, which it was, and it was critically lauded, it was bought, it's just an extraordinary piece of experimental music that made its way to the charts. There's nothing remotely commercial about it and nothing remotely 80s about it. No. You're right. Yeah. Um, Yeah, and it's, it's definitely a really good entry, I think, into the weights catalogue and once more i suppose if you're in this age of melancholy and goth it's very dark and it's dark i kind of think of it as a in my mind i always think of the trilogy of swordfish rain dogs and this yeah this is the well i think the most eclectic in some ways well, they're all eclectic but it's probably swordfish trombones and swordfish trombones is my personal favorite this is the least accessible frank Swallow. this is certainly the least accessible in some ways it's where he goes after this. You know, Bone Machine is like an industrial version of this in some ways. I think it's partly the production as well, isn't it? It's almost deliberately parched and yes. dry. And like you say, there's the track that's made to sound deliberately like it's playing off a 78 RPM record. It's it's deliberately made to sound almost underproduced do you know or, the, or unproduced. Do you know what I think it is? I think that on Sawfish from Bones and Rain Dogs, you have all of the experiments, all of the eccentricity... But there will be moments like, say, Downtown Train or Johnsburg, Illinois, where suddenly there is a drop of conventional beauty or sanity. And I think on Frank's Wild Years, it's a little like a residence recording. There isn't a single moment that isn't peculiar in some fashion. 
Yeah. Even if the song itself is not twisted, there's something about the production that yeah. will make it sound slightly removed from reality. I mean, I suppose that in its nature, it's a musical, it's a musical play. I, I think it still sounds fantastic record. If, if nothing else, it's a masterclass in lo-fi production. Mm. At a time when huge productions were really yes. at their commercial peak. Yes. And, you know, it, it is interesting, isn't it, what artists thrive in what decades? Because Neil Young, who's had such a 60s and such a 70s suddenly is so adrift at this point i think he does his album life doesn't he you know he's absolutely floundering similarly to a certain extent i suppose Joni mitchell around the mid 80s similarly artists like yes you know where they've become producers toys rather than a kind of band um dictating their own directions but then you get artists like Tom Waits, who, you know, obviously had a decent 70s, absolutely comes into his own as a creative force in the 80s. Yes, very much so. The, and Peter Gabriel also. Yes, also, and Kate know, Bush. Reaches a peak in the, and Kate Bush reaches a peak in the 80s, yeah. There's one more one more album. I don't know if you know this album, Tim, in the, I've got in the Mavericks off their rocker category, mm-hmm. Locust Abortion Technician by Butthole Surface. Now, what's interesting about this is that I always thought of Swordfish Trombones by Tom Waits as being a nod to Troutmast Replica. Yeah. And I think Locust Abortion Technician is also a nod to Troutmast Replica. There's something similarly like, what the hell is going on here? Are you familiar with the record? No, I'm, you know, I remember seeing it around and I'm pretty sure you might have played me a couple of pieces around the time, but that's it. It starts off with a cover version of Sweet Leaf by Black Sabbath. Mm, good that choice. is like no cover version you've ever heard in your life before. Mm-hmm. There are moments that are like cowpunk. There are moments that are like prog rock. There are moments that are like psychedelic music. It's very, very peculiar, very eccentric, very alien music. To me, this is what I wanted the residence. To, I'm, I've never been a big fan of mm-hmm. the residence. Something always a bit twee about the residence to me. The butthole surfers, they sound like they're just having fun with the possibilities of music. And it's really hard to understand where they're coming from. Okay, Tim, why don't we... Let, let's... We didn't know when we started this if this was going to be a two-parter, but I think it's pretty clear at this point because we've still got a lot to cover yeah. um, that this is going to be a part, a two-parter. We, we apparently have completely lost our ability to do anything in a concise way. We can't self-edit. Can't edit anymore. It's like can't go past an album without having a two-hour conversation about it. I think it. the thing is that what people don't seem to realise is that a lot of the previous podcasts, we were talking for sort of often three hours you brutally edit it, then I would even more brutally edit it. And that's how we ended up with these concise podcasts. Whereas at the moment, I think we're feeling, I don't know, really profoundly indolent. And this is why we might leave every asinine utterance. I think it's also the sense that we know that we've kind of got our fan base now. The people that listen to our podcast, that kind of follow our podcast, I think they're prepared to go with us now, aren't they? There might be, but this might be the topographic oceans. It might be Trent Darby's second album. (laughs) (laughs) It might be the Godly and Cream 
consequences, consequences. that just divides the audience straight this down is the middle. It. It's like, yeah. Mr. Wilson and Mr. Bonus, I suggest that you shut the fuck up. Well, we'll soon find out, won't we? Especially when we release our four-part 1977, which by the time yeah. you hear this, folks, will have been already out. Is so. that the sound of, so, the, of the average listener? Well, the, the thing just is, wondering. you see, if people are listening to this, then it means they've made it through the four-part 1977. <laughs> so if they've made it through the four-part 1977, you've yeah, got to yeah. figure that they're going to go with us on a two-parter, right? That's possible. Or you think this would be the straw that breaks the camel's I think this back. is it, yeah. It's like, not only is it verbal incontinence, it's 1987. Not only that, they've not chosen my favourite album of the year, Rory Gallagher. Not even mentioned him. Rory Gallagher released an album in 1987? I don't know. Anyway, okay, so we're going to take a break here and we're going to come back and do 1987 part two in the next episode. We will wrap up 1987 in a, in a two-parter. I can guarantee you that, he said with misguided confidence. So, for now... It's goodbye from me, and it's goodbye from Tim. Goodbye. Goodbye.